Father, we love you. Lord, we give you what is on our heart. We give you what is on our minds. Lord, we ask that you quiet them and we hear your heart for us. In your precious name, amen. Throughout your life as a parent, you experience humbling moments in all sorts of facets of the meaning of the word. Your darling two-year-old throwing a fit so royal that God Save the Queen could be the anthem broadcasted throughout Rivertown Mall. Sweating profusely, a fake smile plastered on your face that it's fine as you shove your toddler under your arm and you wrangle bags and coffee and purses in a stroller, sweating profusely as you walk out the mall. That's pretty humbling. Or you're standing in line at the dollar store with your preschooler, directly behind a lady who has been blessed with a rather large derriere. Seeing your child's eyes light up, you see their wheels turning and you're frantically just trying to distract them and you're sweating profusely again. And their shrill little voice asking, Mommy, why are those ladies' buns so big? Incredibly humbling. Or when your five-year-old son adoringly looks at you and says, Mom, you're so awesome, just like a burp. <laughs> you feel seen and known and loved, right, in that moment. Or as they get older, their words are more sophisticated through a Mother's Day card or a birthday card where they make you feel seen and known. Or you often find yourself as the butt of your teenager's jokes. Innocently just being yourself and finding yourself ridiculed, which is humbling. You may be thinking that my message is about humility today, but it's not. I said all of that to say I have no clue how to start my messages anymore, because I was recently featured on Ellie's vlog. She is a master vlogger. She's so stinking funny. She captures these moments of us, and she makes them into something great. So a few weeks ago, we were on our way to family pictures, and she was making a vlog of all of us in the car. And she asked us to all say three fun facts about ourselves. So I will let you in on my humbling moment. Carter, you can play this. My name is Lisa Stonehouse, and a little fun you fact about me. You introduce yourself just like you do at Harbor Life. My name is Lisa Stonehouse. I'm the pastor of discipleship and care. <laughs> If I have not met you yet, I am Lisa Stonehouse. I'm the Director of Discipleship and Care here at Harbor Life. <laughs> My name is Lisa Stonehouse. I'm a little funny. So, if I haven't met you yet, I'm Lisa Stonehouse, ridiculed and humbled. Kids are awesome. <laughs> Today, I have the rare privilege of getting to talk about whatever I want to, what the Lord has laid on my heart, what I'm feeling deep within my soul. So it's a standalone sermon between Genesis, which is the series we've been working on all throughout 2023, and the upcoming partnership series, which Brent will kick off next week. 
So hold tight. We are going to go through a lot of scripture this morning, but it's going to take us a minute to get there. My message today is as much for my heart as it is for your heart. Worldview. Our personal worldview. We all have them, and they affect us. How we think, how we respond, and often how we act. Those personal theologies and worldviews are often based on our past, the stories that make up our life. So 2023 is tied with 2016 as the worst year of my life. Not a statistic that thrills my soul. Consistently this year, it has been pretty brutal. There's been betrayal, false narratives, cruel words, huge disappointments, broken relationships, the death of my sister, a deep loneliness, seeing those that I love walk through the deepest grief, and experiencing that deepest grief myself. Hopes dashed, and oftentimes a seeming quietness from the Lord. Yes, there absolutely has been some good and some beautiful stuff. But glossing over hard stuff is just stupid because it's real. And to lament and acknowledge the really hard stuff honors it and brings us closer toward the healing that we all desperately long for. Oftentimes, I think it's the really hard and painful stuff that molds and shapes our worldview the most. And oftentimes, if we're being honest, that molding and shaping is a bit off because our worldview is often self-centered. And oftentimes, the theologies and the worldviews that we hold can hinder the healing that we so desperately long for. I homeschool my kiddos, and this year, Gabe is working through life science. So it began chapter one a few weeks ago with the definitions of worldview and biblical worldview. That is what started the idea for this message. It really made me pause and think. We all have one. We all have our own personal worldview. At its simplest, a worldview is a person's view of the world, how they see the world. That's pretty simple. It's our own personal framework for understanding reality and answering the big questions about it. It's basically our roadmap for navigating reality. So here are a couple of metaphors to maybe help us understand that. Your worldview is like a pair of glasses. It determines how you view the world. If I put on your glasses, it would be different than my glasses, and I would see things differently. Or your worldview can be like a jigsaw puzzle box. It gives you the big picture so that you can make sense of the individual pieces and arrange them in place. So our view of the world helps us make sense of life's biggest questions. The edge pieces to our puzzle. Who am I? What is my purpose? How should I live? What do I think of people? How do I treat people? What do I think of God? Things like that. That personal worldview changes and shifts when your sister dies. 
At 38, your husband leaves you and your four children. You have a little newborn son and you find out he has a very rare and serious blood disorder. You don't have enough money to pay the bills or even get ahead. Your spouse goes in for a routine surgery and heartbreakingly passes away. Family members are at odds that aren't speaking with you and the family ties that you hold dear are broken. Infertility and miscarriage become a part of your story. An outcome that you'd been praying or hoping for didn't come to be. Feelings of depression and anxiety take hold of your thoughts. That same person lets you down again and again and again. Everything shifts when walking through something painful or challenging. But in light of all that hard that I feel, I know you feel it too. Because many of these things that I just shared are your stories too. I feel challenged, and I think we need to adjust our worldview. Because all too often, our worldview, while there might be some truth in it, and in some of the words, they can sound something like this. My life just plain stinks. I don't deserve this. It's not fair. I hate this. Those things feel pretty true sometimes, and they are true. But then we can take things to that and add them, like, you forgot me, God. I'm just going to be angry because it's easier than feeling pain and loss. I'll never feel joy again. I'm not enough. I'm too much. I'm going to say whatever I want to use my words to wound. Putting up walls to protect me. Being vulnerable is too risky. Withdrawing is safe. Nothing will ever go right for me. So we all have a worldview, the way that we personally see the world. What we see sinks into our minds and can oftentimes work its way into our heart. So let's look at how we can stand up to allowing the suffering and the challenges of life do that. Let's look at how we may be able to shift that thinking. So this is how Gabe's textbook defined biblical worldview. A person with a biblical worldview trusts in the Bible as God's word. God reveals truth to us in the Bible and its story can transform the way you think. A recent nationwide survey completed by the Barna Research Group determined that only 4% of Americans had a biblical worldview. When George Barna, who has researched cultural trends and the Christian church since 1984, looked at the born-again believers in America, the results were a dismal 9%. Barna's survey also connected an individual's worldview world with his or her moral beliefs and actions. And Barna says, although most people own a Bible and know some of its content, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life.
9%. That is so staggering and so sad. So I want to challenge us today to shift our personal worldview into a biblical worldview, which raises the questions, what does the Bible say? How can I believe that to be true? How can I allow that to help me fashion a biblical worldview? I want to clearly state this now. This is not easy. This is not a one, two, three step, or even a 12 step, or an A plus B equals C thing. A once we talk about it, like one time we're gonna talk about it, we're gonna be good. No, because our head and our hearts are in battle with each other. But let's look at what God's word says to us to help us begin to build truth together. I'm gonna open with this verse that is so honest and so hope-filled. It's John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There's the sweetest little sandwich here in Jesus' word. Right? The bread, you're gonna have peace because of me. And then you've got the middle part. You will have trouble. Not the best words I want to hear, but they're honest, right? And as I'm walking out the days of my life, I'm finding this to be true. And then the bread again. It's going to be okay. I've overcome. I have the final say. There's words here telling us that Jesus understands that we desperately need to feel peace. Those words are telling us that Jesus understands that life is full of trouble, of crappy things, of brutal things, of painful things. And then these words are telling us that Jesus understands that we really want to know the end we need to know that it's gonna be okay in the end. And then he's telling us that he overcame them. He overcame the crappy, he overcame the brutal, he overcame the painful things of this world. He's telling us to take heart. But what does that really mean? Take heart is the Greek word therso which means bolstered because warmed up, emboldened from within. Bolstered from within supports unflinching courage, literally to radiate a warm confidence. Therso refers to God bolstering the believer, empowering them with an inner attitude to be of good courage. For the believer to take heart this is the result of the Lord infusing his strength by his inner working of our faith. Showing this unflinching, bold courage means living out the inner confidence that is spirit-produced. I don't know why, but when I read the meaning of Therso, it immediately made me think of this old Campbell's Soup commercial from when I was little. Wherever I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
I know that's a little bit of a stretch, but essentially that little boy was emboldened. He was warmed up from within. Because if I'm cold inside, if I'm shut off, if I'm guarded, I desperately need the Holy Spirit, who to me was the picture of that steaming soup, to infuse me with his strength. And that will begin to shift the inner workings of my faith, the inner workings of my worldview. From that, my heart will begin to melt, to transform, and I will radiate a warm confidence that is only found in him. Let me repeat that quote from Barna. Although most people own a Bible and know some of its content, our research found that most Americans have little idea how to integrate core biblical principles to form a unified and meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life. So how do we integrate the biblical principles into our life? How do we allow God's word to help us have a meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities that life brings? How do we allow taking heart to become our worldview? How do we let what God's word says become our worldview? These are just some of the questions I thought about this week that were rumbling around in my heart and my head. And again, I do not want to simplify this to make it sound easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. I think it's a lifelong journey to shift our gaze from our own worldview to his. This is not a formula. It's a forming of our innermost thoughts and emotions. This is not a quick fix. Do these three things and all will go well. Let's look at what God's word has to say to put some handles on some of these questions. The biblical worldview says there is a God, a God who is personal, who is powerful, who is caring about every single detail of our lives. A God who created the world and everything in it. It states unequivocally that man is created in God's image, living in essence as God's co-regent over creation. Humans, born and unborn, rich and poor, abled and disabled, have intrinsic precious worth. We read in Genesis 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
Male and female, he created them. I was listening to a podcast this week called Therapy and Theology. They were talking about the power of the words in his image. We have lost the magnitude of the meaning through translation and through culture. Joe Muddlemull, who is a therapist featured on the podcast, he says this about the phrase, in his own image. It's rooted in historical context. So when those words are used in time around those people, it's actually a reflection of a king and his children. You would depict the likeness or image of royalty when you use those words. This is an identification of our sonship or daughtership of the fact that we are made in the image of the royal king of heaven and earth. That is pretty profound. It kind of can give you goosebumps if you think about it. We are created in his image, the royal king of heaven, as his son or his daughter. Psalm 139, Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. He knows us intimately. He knows us. He sees us. Psalm 17, 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. You can only ask to keep something you already have or that you already are. That is who we are, the apple of his eye. Psalm 3.3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. He's my protector. He lifts my head. Have you ever had a small child that you were trying to comfort? Their head hanging down and you gently cup their little face in your hands. You lift their head, you look them in their eyes, and you offer words of love and of comfort. That's who he is to us, the lifter of our heads. Isaiah 41, 43.1, And the Lord said, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. He is pleased with us, and he knows us by name. So let's look at our questions again. How do, we, how do we integrate these biblical principles into our life? How do we allow God's word to help us have a meaningful response to the challenges and opportunities of life? How do we walk with a posture of taking heart? How do we let those things that we read, just scratching the surface, about what God says who we are, be our worldview. Every single one of those questions begins with the word how. We ask him to help us. That to me is the simplest, most basic, but meaningful thing we can do. We can intentionally be in his word we can share our hearts with a trusted, wise person, someone who will listen, who will show perspective and insight. 
We can read great books. We can spend time in prayer. All of these are really, really good and they really, really matter. It's simple and not easy. I've been thinking a lot about Moses this week. I remembered this story that I'm about to share as I was scrolling through Instagram. This moment and this thing that he boldly said to God. We find this story in Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Those are such human questions that Moses is asking. God, I feel like I heard you say something to me, but it's missing a whole bunch of pieces and I don't know what you said. You told me that you know me by name and that you love me, but I feel like I haven't heard you. God, teach me and remember me. I feel so many of those things lately. Then the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Okay, God, but if I don't feel you go with me, I'm kind of empty inside and my identity is going to be goofy. Are you sure you know me? Are you sure you're going to help me find rest? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. The request that Moses made then took my breath away this week. Moses said, show me your glory. That phrase has been echoing. It's been reverberating in my soul. God, show me your glory. We can't do it without him. All week as I was thinking and praying over this message and writing it, I asked him, Lord, how do I, how do we do this? How do I share, God, what your heart is for us? How do we shift everything we've convinced ourselves or taught ourselves to believe about you? And I heard him say, ask me to show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. That is how we shift our view. We lay down us. We lay down our fears, our hurt, our pain, our betrayals, the dashed hopes, the dashed dreams, the broken relationships, the enemy's lies. We surrender all of those things to him over and over again. We ask him, show us your glory. I've said it multiple times this week, sometimes triumphantly with great belief, Sometimes with my jaw clenched, 
sometimes through tears, sometimes I've said it with zero emotion inside. But deep down in my soul, I know that I know that I know I believe in the absolute power of those words. Lord, show me your glory, and I know he will. We take heart. We are bolstered. We are warmed up. We are emboldened from within with those words. We learn to radiate a warm confidence, walking in the knowledge that we are made in his image, the king of heaven. He knows us intimately. We are the apple of his eye. He delights in us. He lifts our heads. He protects us. He's pleased with us. And he knows our name and 10,000 more other wonderful things. It's work to connect our brains with our hearts, to make our hearts feel and believe and experience what our brains can learn, what our brains can read and discuss and know. But I wonder if the key to connecting our head with our heart is to ask him to show us his glory. Earlier I said yes, there absolutely has been good and beautiful stuff in my life this year. This has been one of those seasons, though, that I've had to intentionally look for those more than other times in my life. But I think that's the take heart part that Jesus was talking about. He's with us and he comforts us in that middle part the part of, in this world, you will have trouble. He's inviting us to take heart. And when we do, we find rest in him. I think that even when we ache too much to even ask, it's still the show me your glory part. Because I'm finding it. He shows it. Even when I forget to ask, even when my jaw is clenched when I'm saying it, even when tears are streaming down my face, even if I don't have any emotion inside, I see it. So why does this matter? Why does holding fast to a biblical worldview matter? It gives us hope and a joy and a peace, something true and steadfast to cling to. It matters because it helps us to take heart. It matters because it helps us in our spiritual transformation inside to radiate a warm confidence of the knowledge that he has overcome. And a biblical worldview matters because it helps us to know to look for his glory. What if that's the key to the shift in our thinking, the shift in our worldview? The shift to change is holding fast to a biblical worldview. In looking for his glory, in seeing his glory, I see that in spite of the pain, in spite of the hard, he is a good God. He is worth trusting. He delights in us who we are. He delights in being the center of our story. He will care enough to come alongside us and gently lift our heads. He knows us and he calls us by name. 
He loves us enough to give us the warmth to radiate his confidence, his glory as we go about our daily days. I almost missed this next part. I got up early this morning to go over the message and I felt this nudge to go a little deeper. So after Moses said, now show me your glory, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on those on whom I have compassion. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see. When we see him, he tucks us in and he covers us. That certainly does not mean that being tucked is going to keep the bad stuff away because that's just not true. But being tucked in that cleft while he's showing us his glory. He cares for us and he nurtures us when we're on mountaintops, when we're tucked in places trying to see his glory and in the valleys. When we ask, we will see. Then there's a bit about Moses writing the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant. He was with the Lord for 40 days. And in the end of chapter 34, we read, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. Moses was radiating the warmth of his confidence. When we ask, our Father loves us enough to give us the warmth to radiate his confidence, his glory, as we go about our daily days. The message says John 16, in this way. I have told you all of this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart, I have conquered the world. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask God humbly with all of our might, all of our being, Lord, show us your glory. Lord, shift our thinking from the, the lies or the things that we just have said to ourselves to what you have to say about us and what you have to say about our future, Lord. God, this week, let us go forth with the word. Show us your glory, a warmth, bold radiance, a confidence that you will show up coming out of us. Father, thank you for these next few moments that we can celebrate and remember what you did for us through communion. Amen. Communion is an invitation from Jesus to remember him, to taste his goodness, to nourish our spiritual souls at the table. Today, we remember the God who is with us and the God who engages with us and the God who shows us his glory.
the Father who gave us his son so we could be healed and so that we could find our way back to him. We remember Jesus, that he came into this world asking us to trust him. We will be unshakable and assured deeply at peace because of him. When we take the Lord's Supper, we recognize both the promise of a new life in heaven with him that is waiting for us at the end of our story. But it's also a renewal in what is taking place here and now. We're invited to come and gather at this table because we are all a part of the same family. We share the same father. We, together as a community, offer him our brokenness today, knowing that true, deep, lasting healing is possible through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross and through his resurrection. In a moment, you may come up, receive the bread and the juice. You can take it and return to your seat. If you don't feel comfortable, you can stay where you're seated, and that's, that's okay too. In Luke 32, Jesus gathered with his very best friends, and he said to them, I have been so eager to eat this meal with you. He loved them so much. He knew what was about to happen in just a matter of a couple hours. And yet he was excited and eager and delighted to share this time, to share this meal with them. Jesus knows us. He knows every part of who we are. And in spite of that, he is eager to invite us to come to this table. Jesus stopped at nothing. He gave his life for us so that we could be healed. We come to this table today to remember him what he did for us with such deep gratefulness. Because no matter what, in spite of everything, of who we are and who we're not, he loves us so deeply. There is nothing we can do to make him love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make him love us less. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took this bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. Drink this and remember me. You can come for all things are ready.